today on the Energy Podcast. Climate change is not just about one class of people. It's not just about the working class or the urban class. It affects all of us. The most important thing continues to be the role of carbon credits and operationalizing Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And I, I think putting that on steroids at COP27 would be a great thing to do. The 2022 UN Climate Change Conference, or COP27 as it's known, takes place in November. And in the build-up, we've been exploring how to cut carbon from the heavy industries that power our modern world. We've discussed steel, cement and those everyday products that you and I use that contain industrial chemicals. And if you've missed any of those episodes, you can download them all for free wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're specifically looking ahead to the conference and finding out what we can expect. COP27 is taking place in Egypt against the backdrop of a global energy and cost of living crisis. And the conference will include a strong focus on Africa, as well as how countries will prepare for the impacts of climate change and the allocation of finance. The programme includes Decarbonisation Day, which will focus on cutting carbon from energy intensive sectors and the role of technology. Hello, I'm Julia Streets, and today on the Energy Podcast, 1.5, turning ambition into action. So allow me to introduce my guest today. David Hone is Shell's Chief Climate Change Advisor, and with him is Prudence Glorious, Chief Purpose Officer at PZG Impact Communications Firm, who joins us today from Tanzania. David, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, and Prudence, wonderful you could join us. Asante san, I'm happy to be here. So let's get straight into it. And I'd love to come to you, first of all, David. So talk to us about COP and why it is important. Well, the COP process has been underway as an integral part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And um, it serves as a mechanism to establish uh, cooperation, to establish treaties and pacts. And uh, for instance, the Paris Climate Agreement, the recent Glasgow Climate Pact, these were all things that came out of COPs and, and the process of the United Nations Framework Convention. Uh, many people look at it and think it's just a, a meeting of lots of people all coming to a nice part of the world. But, but in fact, it, it maintains a, a pressure related to the climate issue. It, it keeps governments on their toes. It forces them to act on the information that's available, for instance, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it creates a global agenda around climate change that is really important. Otherwise, would governments be acting? Would they share their best practices? Would they share their goals and targets? It's the forum for all of that to happen because the climate issue only gets solved through global action, not through individual country action. So I mentioned in the introduction that you are Shell's chief climate change advisor. So I'm curious to know what is that role and, uh, and what is your interaction with COP? Well, the role of chief climate change advisor, as I've had it, has varied over the years. I've had that title for over 20 years in Shell, but not the same job. And so it meant dealing with all sorts of issues from the implementation of policies in the EU to attending COPs as a representative of, of an observer party. So today, I, I work in the Shell Scenarios team, 
There are lots of other people in Shell now looking at this issue, looking at it from the transition perspective, looking at it from the policy perspective. But my role is is really looking forward, looking where the company needs to go, where the issue is going, where the climate is forcing society to move towards, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years. And a really key part of this pathway to success is going to be centred around collaboration. You talked about, you know, COP being a place where people not only set the agenda, but also are highly accountable for the decisions that are made in the progress pathway. What's going to be different? What do we expect from COP this year? Well, collaboration is important, and it's one of the four key themes that the Egyptian presidency has tabled. So they've tabled mitigation, adaptation, finance, and collaboration, uh, specifically mentioning collaboration. But I think this COP is important in that it's between two other sort of big events in the UN calendar. The, The event last year was COP26, where the Glasgow Climate Pact was enshrined, and where the the leaders who were there really pushed the agenda towards 1.5 degrees C. And the next COP next year in in the United Arab Emirates uh, is is really focusing on the global stock take, which is where are we? What's everyone doing? What are they saying? Are they living up to expectations? What more do we need to do to realise, for instance, the goals of Glasgow and the Paris Agreement? And so this COP sits between those in the sense that it's got to start to operationalize and, and get the Glasgow Climate Pact moving and ensure that the next presidency is ready for the stock take. In addition, because of its location in Africa, the presidency wants to focus on the energy transition from an African context. It wants to focus on adaptation. Uh, because adaptation is is particularly uh, challenging in that continent. And it also wants to focus on finance, because for Africa to, to leapfrog effectively the fossil fuel era and, and, and move into a, a different energy system than the one that, for instance, you see you know, in other parts of the world today, is going to require some special steering, and finance is going to be a big part of that. Well, what better moment to welcome our other guest, Prudence Glorious. Uh, Prudence, you join us, as I said in the introduction, from Tanzania. And we're very uh, keen to hear from you because you're not only an entrepreneur, you've previously worked at the UN, and I know you're deeply passionate about the economic development of both the country and also the region as well. When we think about climate change, when we think about COP27, I'm very keen to hear your thoughts about what matters, uh, what comes out of that 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 particularly appeals and what are you focused on? Uh, Thank you, Julia. In my context, climate change is quite an interesting topic in the sense of where we are at as a nation and also where we are at as Africa. When I just look at my country, over 80% of us still use a three-stone cooker We use charcoal, we cut trees to get energy to feed ourselves. That's where we're at as a nation. When you walk out in the streets, very few people have an understanding of what climate change is or what is currently happening throughout the globe or what is their role to play. So I'm happy that this discussion is coming to the continent, but I'm also very wary 
of our understanding of climate change as an African. In my language, climate change uh, is, is translated to tabia nchi. If I, trans, if I translate it to, to English, it says the changes in the land. And we're experiencing a lot of changes in our land. That's the word we use in Swahili. It says Tabianchi. We're experiencing a lot of changes in the land, but very few of us are aware of that. Very few of us have the access or have the capacity to change our, our energy users or to, uh, to use renewable energy in our industrialization and in our everyday life. So it's quite an interesting topic and quite an interesting thing to look at as an African or as a Tanzanian. Well, I think this is a really fascinating balance because on one hand, in the series, we've been talking about the, uh, the decarbonisation of heavy industry, the need to change at pace and at scale and the industrial, if you like, effort that's being put behind reaching these targets. But at the same time, of course, on the ground, let's call it grassroots, there's a very different appreciation of what climate change may mean. Now, Prudence, look, we've got David here. This is a beautiful moment for you to come in and, and, and ask David some questions. The global north has an industrial advantage uh, for the from the use of coal and steam in its early stages to the current fourth industrial revolution. In the first world, you have so many advances that have been begotten by your industrialization. My country in the third world and my continent, for the most part, is currently just scratching the surface of the third wave of industrialization as we're trying to leapfrog into four IR. We have a lot of transformative projects like the EA COP that needs to happen sovereignly and we need energy, we need gas and we need oil in order to industrialize and become part of the first world. The globe belongs to all of us. But why don't you, the global north that is, start making the changes and let us have the sovereignty to explore, to drill and build massive industries that are common fixtures in the global south while you take concerted actions to get to net zero? David. So there are two key issues that, that have to be discussed to, uh, to, to answer the question. The first is that you know, today in the global south, the use of fossil fuels on a per capita basis is very low. But the population is large and it's growing. It's one of the parts of the world where the population continues to grow through the century. Even if you maintain the current low level of fossil fuel use per capita and roll that through the century, just from that contribution alone, you end up at two degrees C. And if you move the fossil fuel use up on a per capita basis, for instance, to the level that, that we enjoy you know, in the United Kingdom today, you're at three degrees C. And so in any scenario, the global south will have to decarbonize. And that's part of the global commons problem. The second issue is that introducing fossil fuels into the energy mix today repeats actions that have been taken in, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and China and now India over the last century. It brings rapid development, but it also brings a raft of other problems, mainly uh, environmental, both local and global, that have to be addressed and have to be eventually unwound. And so they have the opportunity today to leapfrog that and not introduce that at all and move straight to a clean energy system. And the technologies are there to do it 
but not all the levers to ensure that it happens are yet in place. And that's why this COP is important. Prudence, I'd love to get your, your reaction to David's response to your question. Um, I would love for David to elaborate. When you say leapfrogging, what, what, what are those innovations that you see the Global South taking an advantage of to move straight into renewable energy? So renewable energy is now available. It's available at much lower cost than, say, even a decade ago, uh, even, even five or six years ago when the Paris Agreement was, uh, was set up. You know, the cost of renewables is coming down. And so generating electricity for cities and for industry can be done using solar and wind. But solar and wind, as well as providing electricity, can be used to generate hydrogen. So you feed electricity in, and we've all done this chemistry experiment at school where you use electrolysis and you, you put the electrodes into water and, and hydrogen bubbles out. Yep. So that is a relatively simple technology. The cost of that on an industrial scale is rapidly diminishing, and it provides a fuel that can be used in industry for clean growth. For instance, smelting iron ore to make steel with hydrogen instead of using coal. That is becoming an available technology. It's not fully at scale yet, but it's, it's, we're knocking on the door of that today with pilot plants in Europe. These are the things that economies need, these basic industries, to grow and flourish. And, and Prudence, are you optimistic that this is going to come through and give you the, the leapfrog that you're hoping for? You know, I am optimistic about the future, but there's one word that David said, cost. That all of this uh, leapfrogging alternate technologies come at a cost. So my question is, who is going to cover that? Given that in my in my nation, people are still using three stones and wood to cook. And I, given the fact that in my nation, we still have power cuts who are doing COP27. Are we going to have a couple of uh, big nations, big players that are going to commit to cut down the cost of this alternate technology so that we can get them. I'm also excited uh, uh, when I look around me, we have a couple of young people that are innovating when it comes to renewable energy that are also recycling, uh, recycling batteries so that they can uh, give access to solar power to people in, in the rural areas. But still it comes at a huge cost. Is, is, is the world ready to support us in covering this cost and how are they how do they plan to go about this is this something we're going to explore during the cop 27 in november david well i say far bit from david to comment on behalf of the the un or indeed of the entire conference however love your thoughts on that i mean what your do you see yeah. a discussion about finance and cost so i think there are two elements to cost there's the basic cost of supplying energy which countries like tanzania are going to have to find irrespective of the technology they use. And then there's the differential cost, which is the, or additional cost, if you're going to perhaps go to a different energy technology. Now, historically, that different energy technology, be it solar, wind, hydrogen, nuclear, has come at a higher cost than, for instance, just going straight into, into burning coal. That is no longer the case. That cost differential has shrunk or is, is in some cases vanished, particularly by the time you include 
the full cost of, of developing a coal mine, developing the infrastructure to move coal, building the coal-fired power stations, and all the other things that you have to do just to generate some electricity uh, on a city-wide scale. Um, so, so using solar and wind does not introduce, or at least introduces a relatively small differential. I think the focus of the COP in part has to be on the differential, where it exists and how to cover it. The focus on the basic cost of introducing energy infrastructure into you know, least developed and developing countries is a broader issue uh, that I don't think that the COP is really set up to address. It'll be interesting to see to what extent that might come through in the discussions this year, because it strikes me that those infrastructure costs are incredibly important from what you were suggesting. Um, Prudence, while you're here, I mean, it's wonderful to hear about some of the local innovation that's going on and some of these local entrepreneurs. And, and that's your world. You, you yourself, you're an entrepreneur as well. What, what are you most excited by on the ground when you, when you look around you uh, in terms of innovation? In the energy sector, actually, there's a lot happening when it comes to distribution of clean cooking fuels. I'm really excited to see that transition uh, from fossil fuels to clean cooking fuels happening. We have UN, uh, UNCDF and an EU fund called the Cook Fund uh, that is being set up to accelerate the use of clean cooking fuels. So that's happening at at a high level, I want to see how it will trickle down to the everyday Tanzanian and, and, and to, that means to the suppliers and the consumers of clean cooking fuels. There is also a move towards a social, economic and environmental impact on a corporate, on a, on a corporate level where we see more blue chip companies or companies that are listed in the Deaflam Stock Exchange uh, putting environment as one of their big social responsibility aspects that is also very interesting to see what they're doing, either it be uh, reforestation, we have uh, family foundations that are really championing uh, the creation of what we call garden forests uh, in, in urban areas. Actually, we have a new wind energy plant that is being uh, that that has been developed just increase our electricity supply so there's a couple of interesting things that are happening but still there is room for more knowledge sharing and knowledge creation to your everyday Tanzania because climate change is not just about uh, one class of people it's not just about the working class or the urban class it affects all of us it's a it's an everyday thing so I really I'm hoping that this change that is happening will be will trickle down to your everyday African, to your everyday Tanzanian in the village who is still cutting trees to go feed their children. And, you know, one of the things that's coming through loudly and clearly in this entire energy podcast series ahead of uh, COP27 is that when we look at policy and we look at the highest level and governments and policymakers coming together, we think about the role of corporates and collaboration and innovation and very much the role of the individuals. And it's wonderful, Prudence, to hear your stories of, of uh, innovation that's happening on the ground, but also where there's potential to do more and also the, the market education that, that's, uh, that's needed as well. If I return to COP26, there was a lot of media coverage, David, about Shell being disinvited from COP. Is that correct? Individual companies aren't invited to the COP in the first place. Nobody, uh, apart from 
maybe the UN offers an invitation to particular CEOs to come and speak, but not not to companies. Uh, the UN accredits NGO organizations such as the International Chamber of Commerce, uh, for example. And on, on their behalf, people from companies turn up at the COPs as observers. So they're not participating in the process. They are not even allowed to go to all of the meetings. Uh, they're certainly not in, engaged in the, um, in the negotiations. They're there as observers. Uh, they attend side events. They might put side events on. And, you know, my, my attendance at COPs has always been through an accredited observer organization. Uh, I go as me as part of their delegation. Yes, I work for Shell. And yes, that means, you know, Shell has a presence there. But companies are not there as companies. Uh, they are there representing the organizations that accredit them. And yes, there are numerous people from the oil and gas industry that turn up. But it's in their interest to turn up because this is a discussion about how the world makes an energy, how the world is progressing the energy transition, and, and these companies both want to and need to be part of that. And Prudence, I mentioned earlier about you know your former role working with the UN as well, and I know that uh, that you're obviously observing everything that happens at COP twenty seven very keenly. And carbon credits are one of the areas of discussion that tends to come up quite a lot. I, I understand that's something that you're thinking about. Yes, I would love to know how a Africa can gain an advantage from that from carbon credits, and also how with Shell as a key player in that sector, uh, working to provide more and cleaner energy. David? Yeah, carbon credits are a, a key aspect of the, the UN process. And um, they were part of the Kyoto Protocol that predates the Paris Agreement. And they're integral to the Paris Agreement under what we call Article 6. So Article 6 opens up the door for trading of carbon credits which allows money to move into to countries where, where projects, for instance, to reduce emissions are, uh, are, are taking place. Most importantly, though, there is no net zero emissions without carbon credits. And the reason for that is that, you know, as we look towards 2050, we're still going to be in a world that has emissions. And the only way to effectively be at zero is to match those emissions with removals, mechanisms to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So there's two ways of doing that. One is through industrial processes, where you geologically store carbon dioxide, and the other is through nature, where you reforest, for instance, an area of countryside. And Tanzania certainly can, can participate in the second one, but there's also no reason why it can't participate in the first one. And, and so if you activate a project in, in a country and um, you generate carbon removals, you can sell them into other places where there are continuing emissions. And that brings, of course, much needed finance in for the project. And so you get a virtuous circle of change. And that's something that all countries need to look at, but particularly countries which have, for instance, enormous um, potential for, for for reforestation. And, and, and I believe, you know, 
given its location in the world and geography, Tanzania is one of those. And do you see much of that on the ground, uh, Prudence? Do you see uh, the opportunity for carbon credits and, and getting involved there? When we speak about carbon credits in our area, it really comes down to climate financing. You know, like looking at projects that uh, have an aspect of reforestation to them, that have an aspect uh, that have an aspect of green energy, and putting our energy and investment to them. When I spoke to my colleague at at that bank, they're like, it's really a struggle to get projects like that uh, because they have a fund, they have a climate financing fund, but they're really struggling to get a clear cut project that they can support. Uh, that means uh, either there is a knowledge gap or either there's no, apart from the one, two uh, flagship energy projects, uh, renewable energy projects in Tanzania, there's very few projects that understand carbon credits or how to take an advantage of that. So there's, there's still room for uh, players in, in this sector to take an advantage of carbon credits. And there's very few people who are doing it. I think Prudence is exactly right. There is room for, for expansion of this. And this comes back to what can happen at COP27. So Article 6, which is this mechanism within the Paris Agreement that allows climate finance to flow through carbon credits, is still in its infancy in terms of implementation. It was the last part of the Paris Agreement that was fine, that was agreed just at the last COP uh, in Glasgow. And, and so one of the really important things that the Egyptian presidency could do is to fast track the operation of this, uh, of this article and, and really get it moving and really get it moving in an African context. So I think the opportunity is there to do this and I hope that they take that up. So what I'd love to ask each of you as we close out this fascinating discussion is if there were one single thing that would help the world achieve the 1.5 climate goal of the UN Paris Agreement, what would it be? David, I'm coming to you first. One, thing, one single thing is a, is a big ask. Um, but I think that the, and I've talked about it in this episode, the most important thing continues to be uh, the role of carbon credits and operationalizing Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So we, we've got the rule book agreed in Glasgow. We've got the market chomping at the bit to use it. The UN needs to put all the mechanics in place to get it rolling. And I, I think putting that on steroids in, uh, at COP27 would be a great thing to do. Fabulous. Putting it on steroids at COP27. We look forward to that very much indeed. Prudence, is similar question to you. If there were one single thing, what would that be? So an aspiration and something that will bring a big change in the African continent is if there'll be very low or zero interest, uh, for, uh, zero interest when it comes to climate financing. And if the focus of the money trickling into our continent from the global north will go to projects that are environmentally friendly and climate friendly and very sound when it comes to the environmental responsibility. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. And David Hone, thank you for all your thoughts as we look ahead to COP27. Thank you very much. My thanks to David Hone and Prudence Glorious. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. Listen and follow for free wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. 
next time unpacking COP27. The Energy Podcast is a fresh air production and I must remind you that the views you've heard today from individuals not affiliated with Shell are their own and not Shell PLC or its affiliates. I'm Julia Streets. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.